Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at CFGI. This is the program where we dig deeper to understand what really matters most in business. When a company goes up for sale and is sold, it is a very impactful transaction, obviously, impacting not just the business owner, of course, but impacting a whole ecosystem of other providers, accountants, attorneys, wealth managers, not to mention the family. Today, we're going to be talking about the business transaction from a somewhat different perspective. And my guest today, all the way from Arizona, is Denise Logan, who is known as the Seller Whisperer, and she's the author of The Seller's Journey. Denise, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Hi, Dave. It's so nice to be with you. Uh, thank you for getting up early to join us today, all the way from Arizona. My pleasure. So you have a fascinating background, um, lawyer, social worker, business owner, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are? Hmm. So I'm known as the seller whisperer, and I came to this work early in my life. I was a mental health professional and then a lawyer, and I watched deals unravel for all the reasons that were not being said, and I realized we could do better. With less than one-third of deals that go to the market closing, that's a tragedy for our owners and for the advisors who work on those deals. So I set up a practice where I work one-on-one -on -one with business owners and their advisors to help them navigate the inevitable emotional obstacles that come up in letting go of their life's work. Emotional. So that's interesting because most times when we talk about transactions, business sales, it, it is more from a transactional perspective, which is why your perspective is so unique and fascinating, and I can't wait to dive into it. But in your intro, you mentioned that such a small number, I just jotted it down here, less than one-third of all transactions close. Why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, one of the primary ones is that for our owner, this is a transition not a transaction. It is the single largest transition that will happen in their professional life. And so for advisors, many of us know that and in the process of selling a business, there are ups and downs. But for our clients, every time they hit an obstacle, it feels like the bottom has dropped out of their life. If you think about even selling a house, many of us will sell a house multiple times in the course of our adult life. But for our business, there's probably only one time that they will go through the process of a sale. I like to use the metaphor. Do you remember the children's game, Shoots and Ladders, sure. that we played when we were kids? So if you think about it, we're trucking along the board, and you get a good spin or a good roll of the dice, and you move up the ladder, and you think, woohoo, here we go, we're on our way. And then the next spin, you hit a shoot, and zoom, you come right back down. For our clients, that feels like everything has fallen apart. When we care for the emotional obstacles that those are causing for them, they're able to last longer. We hear often in a transaction, we'll hear advisors say that time kills all deals. And I think that's a fallacy. I actually think it's the unprocessed emotion that kills deals. Because every time that the bottom drops out for our clients, their ability to have the emotional stamina to make it all the way through is impacted. 
Yeah, can we unpack that just a little bit more because it's interesting and you know, I've, I've been in investment banking and some of my best friends are investment bankers as we like to say. And yeah, speed is, is one of the things that uh, is always talked about. Got to keep the momentum of the transaction moving uh, because if you hit a roadblock that could stall the deal or kill the deal. Talk a little bit more about that. Why, why it isn't speed? So we're wired as emotional people. And, and let's just talk, let's unpack how emotion shows up for us. Um, I'm going to use my hand as a metaphor. So your hand is like your brain. The thumb is the amygdala. It's the fear sensor in our brain. And it's always scanning the environment, looking for danger. And it's the oldest part of our brain. But it's also kind of the dumbest part of our brain because while it's looking for danger, it can't always tell what's real danger and what's perceived danger. So imagine this. If when you were a child, you were attacked by a bear or chased by a bear, your amygdala would spot a big black dog when you're an adult and think it's a bear and signal you to run. That's happening all the time in our transactions. So someone in, at the deal table may make a face that your amygdala spots as the face your mother made before you were in trouble. It's going to signal your fear sensor in your brain. When we're more aware about how our own fear shows up and how we can tame ourselves, we don't trigger each other so much. So if you think about this process of just using the hand, if you wrap your thumb across your palm and bring your fingers over the front, what we're doing is creating a visual of our brain. This part that's wrapped over the front is the prefrontal cortex. It's the thinking part of our brain. When the amygdala is activated, we literally flip our lid. And you can see that happen in deals all the time especially because uncertainty triggers fear. And think about how much uncertainty is happening in the course of a transaction. When that happens, as it inevitably will, when we're able to slow down the process and help bring the thinking brain back online, our clients are able to settle emotionally and physically, and then they're able to hear again. Now, you also work with the intermediaries. You're working with investment bankers and other advisors who are not trained as psychologists, although, frankly, we all make the comment that you know, working in a client service business, we have to be part-time psychologists. Uh, but what you're talking about is what I would characterize as somewhat nuanced. How do you enlighten those advisors to this as you're working with them so that they're more sensitive and they're cognizant of these kinds of things as they're going through the process? Yeah, what we want to do is always help normalize what's going on in the process. So by way of example, the very first time we poke at financials in a transaction, our seller is going to be filled with shame, even if there's nothing for them to be ashamed of, because they're getting caught in this dynamic in their mind where they realize, I've always been the person who knew all the answers. And what if someone spots something and I look dumb? The fear of looking dumb will also trigger the dynamic I just said. So one of the things I, I like to say that even though I've called it the seller whisperer, the truth is that I'm whispering to everyone in the transaction. 
because when the seller gets scared, the banker gets scared. Oh, yeah. And so does the buyer, and so does the lawyer. And so where I start with almost any deal is we start looking at how everyone in the transaction shows up and how what you're doing might be triggering someone else. Sometimes I'll hear an advisor say, can you just make my client behave? I'm like, yeah, but first we might also help you behave. So, and it's not about behaving badly. It's about understanding the natural things that are going on so that we can be self-aware. The more self-aware we are and the more empathetic we are with our clients, the more deals close. So Denise, for those folks who are watching and listening and want to learn more about you, how they can get the book, maybe even how they can work with you or invite you to come speak, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Oh, Dave, you can find me at denise.logan.com. And the book is The Seller's Journey. It's written as a business fable. It's the story one year after he sells his news. He goes on a trip across Glacier National Park with his banker, his lawyer, his wealth manager, and the private equity buyer who bought his company. And yes, they all come back alive from the glacier. He wrote it as a business fable so that they fall into the story and see themselves in it. As they cross the glacier, they rate the physical obstacles that they're encountering to the emotional obstacles that they all faced in getting the deal across the finish line. And rather than have it in a how-to book, I wrote it as this fable, and it's a great tool to be able to give to an owner or a prospect to help them see not only the obstacles that they're going to face, but it also frames the advisor who gives it to them in uh, a more caring light. It helps them see you as someone they can and trust with more than just their business. And the book's available on my website at deniselogan.com. Great. Thanks for that. We're going to pause here and take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back after these words. Don't go anywhere. Number seven. Number eight. Nine regular. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, Thirteen. Giant. Of course. Number one. Jersey Mike's. A sub above. Today's show is sponsored by Dr. Jacqueline. Take charge of your life personally, financially, and professionally. Visit drjacqueline.com to book an appointment today.
Hey everybody, my name is Ralph Graves Jr. I'm the host of the Ralph Graves Jr. Show, and I want to invite you to pick up my book, Unstoppable. I wrote a book called Unstoppable. It's, it's seven universal laws that will transform how you pursue and achieve success. The one thing that my 20 years of law enforcement has taught me is that no matter who you are, we are all governed by universal laws, like gravity. But in this book, we're going to talk about laws like the law of forgiveness, laws like the law of control, the law of intelligent practice, the law of expectancy. I was able to see how those, no matter what their background was, those who, who identified and, and treated these laws with respect, they were able to go on and lead successful lives. So pick up this book and you can go ahead and pick it up at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, RalphGravesJr.com, where, um, anywhere where fine books are sold. Thank you. Hi everyone, welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking with the seller whisperer, Denise Logan. Uh, in that first segment, we covered a lot of good territory, and we ended on uh, how people can learn more about the book, Denise. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to write the book? I think I said earlier that so few deals close. And one of the things I saw, I watched advisors feel like this was a numbers game, that for them, they had to always be running lots of deals simultaneously because they were concerned about how few closed. And I realized for our owners and for our advisors, when a deal doesn't close, it's far more than just a failed deal. For our owners, the bulk of business owners intend to fund their retirement with the proceeds from the sale of their business. So if they don't sell their business, there are families and, and employees and communities who are harmed. But I also saw something going on in transactions where the advisors hated each other by the end of the deal. They could not wait to get away from each other. So we had owners who were filled with remorse. If they managed to get their deal across the finish line, they were exhausted. And I refer to it as post-transaction stress disorder that both our owners and advisors are facing. I also saw there was a huge lack of trust that was going on. So I did a training at a private equity firm recently, and one of the things they wanted me to talk about is how they could get the investment bankers to give them the secret information that they hold back. And I said, huh, are you trustworthy? If they share the secret information with you, Will you respond well or will you blow up? So I wrote the book because I watched all of these things going on in a transaction, treating it like it's a, a numbers game, people withholding trust from each other, traumatizing each other, and the tragedy of deals not closing. And I knew there was a better way. And that's what made me write the book the way I did. Yeah, trust is a theme that you, you talk about quite a bit that's an undercurrent of the book, so to speak. And you know, without trust, there's, there's no rapport in any kind of a relationship. But when you talk about this transactional environment, how can you advise the advisors and the, the sellers to build that kind of trust in, in, in a situation where inherently I think people are inclined not to lean that way? So trust is something that builds over time. And it's why getting to know your seller 
long before they become your client is an important part. It's not just about winning the deal and, and being able to start the process. Cultivating a relationship with the owner is key long before they become your, your formal client. Same thing with our transactional partners. So there's an interesting phenomenon that I've watched over the past 20 years that's gone on where instead of finding a handful of potential buyers, there's this big process that's run where hundreds of buyers are approached. And that makes it come down, instead of it being, you know, we, we think about the beauty contest, right? It's really about who is the right fit for the client. And that comes from a deepening of connection. We're seeing it right now in, you know, we're recording this during the time of quarantine and uh, the coronavirus. And I hear people say, well, there's no more networking to be done. Oh, that's nonsense. There's plenty of networking to be done, but network, networking for the purpose of building relationships. So what if instead of thinking we need to have 100 or 150 relationships that we're trying to manage, what if we deepened into 20 of those relationships? That's where trust comes, not just from treating each other as if we're a cog in each other's wheel, but really dropping down into knowing each other more deeply. Yeah. I want to talk to you about a concept uh, called seller's remorse. And there's a lot of reasons why sellers may have remorse at the end of the deal. Some of it could be related to valuation. They didn't get the price they thought. Some of it could be ultimately maybe realizing that they didn't wind up with the right fit buyer for a number of reasons. Uh, some of it could simply be that now they wake up and they wonder, what am I going to do now tomorrow that I don't have a job to go to? Because that's one of the big reasons that my investment banker friends tell me that uh, clients are hesitant to put their business for sale because they don't know what's next. Why don't you talk a little bit about seller's remorse, if you would, and, and how can the collective ecosystem work to minimize that, if not eliminate it? Right. So seller's remorse, let, let's kind of break that down. If we think about work provides many things for us, and early on with a client, I will ask them, what does work provide for you? And I encourage anyone in the advisory sector to ask your clients that question. What does work provide? We get really hung up on the money piece of work and think that the only thing this owner wants is to sell the business and get their money out. So we can talk with them a ton about cash. But if you just think about it, Dave, you know, work provides many things. So money, another is a place to go during the day to get away from your spouse, perhaps. It also provides friendship, camaraderie, power. We should be able to get somewhere between 10 and 12 distinct answers from our client about what work provides. And as you might imagine, any question I'm gonna ask a client, I've already asked myself. And it's a question that I want an advisor to be able to answer for themselves too. So ask yourself, what does work provide for me that will help you to have more empathy for your client around it. The reason it's important to know what work provides is because those needs don't go away on the other side of the sale. I'll give you an example of that. I was working on a transaction with a client on the West Coast. 
was a software company and the seller was in his mid thirties. He was going to net $16 million on the other side of the sale. And at one point he realized, who am I going to hang out with hmm. when I sell this business? And he was out for drinks with a buddy and he said that to his friend to which his buddy responded, boo-hoo, I wish I had your sad little $16 million problem, man. That's a natural reaction to come from an advisor or even from a friend. The challenge is that doesn't make the problem go away. It just goes underground. So helping our owners to be able to know what does work provide and how will they be able to get that net on the other side of the transaction, whether they're staying on and continuing with the business for a period of time or whether they're fully exiting. That's a period of loss and grief. I saw something yesterday come through my email. Um, it was, it said Tombstone Tuesday was the headline huh. on it. And I thought we use such interesting language as deal professionals. What might it feel like if you were an owner and your business was referred to on a tombstone? You know, it's hard enough for our owners to feel like this is a, a sum a form of death. It's a professional death for them sometimes. And so might we be more cautious with the language that we're using and thinking about how it lands for our clients? Yeah, we have about four minutes to go here. So before we move on real quickly, uh, why don't you tell the audience how they can learn more about you, especially if they maybe they want to find out how you can come speak at an event or at their company? Yeah, my website is deniselogan.com and I speak at conferences all across the world. And I'm lucky enough to do some trainings in-house with firms to help you understand what's going on in your deals and how to close more of them successfully. One of the things I love to do is to be able to come in, uh, do a training, and then strip down a couple of failed deals so we can see what was going on and what you could have done a little differently. Because really, in the end, this is work that someone in every deal is doing already and either hates doing it or is doing it artfully. So if we're all going to pretend that we're part-time psychologists with our clients, let's just have a few more quivers, uh, a few more arrows in our quiver to be able yep. to do it better. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's good stuff. And in the roughly three minutes that we have, and I hate to constrain you, but you know, it is what it is time-wise here. Time goes very, very quickly. Um, I wanted to talk to you about deal fatigue. And that can manifest in a number of ways. One of the things that I've seen in terms of deal fatigue that was a profound impact on a transaction was after about the 80th iteration of a purchase agreement, uh, people started to glaze over the document, maybe didn't read it as, as closely. And uh, in the final analysis, when push came to shove, um, the deal wasn't really papered the way everybody thought it was supposed to be, and it all slipped through. Talk about deal fatigue from your perspective in the two and a half minutes we have here and, and how we can collectively, again, as an ecosystem, minimize that or prevent that. Yeah. So it, that's a really great example that you gave, that we're papering the deal. Um, one of the reasons we paper the deal, to, not to harp on fear, but it's the worry and the fear that shows up. And when we have greater trust in the transaction, we don't have to be so anxious about how to paper everything over. That's when we make 
better deals, when we know each other better, and of course we need to document things. Remember, my history is I was a lawyer, so I'm not unaware of the need to have things in writing. But the reality is, no matter what's in the document, we're dealing with humans. And so deal fatigue comes when we're nagging and nitpicking on each other and trying to force instead of slowing down enough to say what's really going on. And uh, I could give you a ton of different examples of how that shows up. Well, deal fatigue comes not because of duration, but because we don't have trust in each other and because we haven't taken the time to address the underlying issues that are going on below the surface. Yeah, good stuff. And you work with bankers, you work with private equity, you work with attorneys. So this is not just some woo-woo stuff that you're espousing here. This is practical, real-world advice that you implement day to day. I do. And sometimes I'll hear an advisor say to me, I don't have time for all of this. And my answer is, do you have time for deals that you work that don't close? There you go. That's, that is the money shot, as they say. Um, so I'm going to end it right there, and I thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today all the way from Arizona. appreciate you getting up early and joining us here on Behind the Numbers. Hopefully we'll have you back again uh, when we can spend some more time chatting. And for you, for you watching and listening at home uh, or wherever you are out in the world, thank you for joining us on Behind the Numbers. If you enjoyed what you heard or watched here today, please do hit the subscribe button so that you can stay in touch with all that we're doing. Till next time, take care, everybody.